Office Hours Live is brought to you by Arroya, the ultimate cultivation platform. Unlock the power of crop steering through our state-of-the-art sensors and software. Repeat successful runs and scale faster than ever before. Schedule a demo today at Arroya.io. All right, it's 4.20 p.m. Eastern Time on Thursday. That means it's time for Arroya Office Hours Live. Welcome. My name is Keisha. I'll be your moderator for today's discussion. Just a couple of reminders before we get started. This hour is your chance to hear from the experts, get answers in real time about data and uh, what that you're seeing with your grow, and share cultivation tips and tricks with other growers in this exciting industry. We thank everybody in advance for not using this time for things like airing policy or industry grievances or asking about Arroya pricing Although, please do book a demo. We'd love to talk to you about that. Um, feel free to type your questions into the chat at any time. And if your question is selected, we'll have you unmute yourself and ask away. Plus, as a bonus, we're sending an Arroyo hat to anyone who asks a question for the first time during today's live session. And that is limited to US residents only and one hat per household. Jason, Seth, happy Thursday, gentlemen. You ready for our first question? Sure. Thanks, so, Keisha. Yeah. Great. Okay. This comes from Baby Got Dry Bags 420. They want to know, how does Arroyo's metric integration work? And is it available in all the states where metric is required? So we've worked on a, a list of states here, and I'll just break down the list uh, that we are currently integrated with. And that's going to be California, Colorado, Maine, Massachusetts, Michigan, and Nevada. Uh, we anticipate integrating all the states that uh, that metric is enforced in. And basically it just comes down to the amount of requests uh, to prioritize those states and bring them online. Each state has a kind of a, a specific set of integrations. And so it takes some amount of development energy and we do plan on, on getting that going for any states that are on metric. How the metric integration works is we get your API key and your metric license number put those into our system and then we import all your plant tags and you can start doing metric events right through a harvest group so there's a relationship um, a little bit different with our system than most compliance softwares and that is we really focus on the process so it's it's facing from rather than a, a database manipulation standpoint it's following a harvest group throughout the life cycle of those plants. So when you build out a harvest group, it's going to ask you what clones you're taking from which mothers, how many of those, and it'll build a, a clone lot compliance event based on that. As that plant progresses throughout its life cycle, so when you go from veg to flower for California, you can, uh, say, tag plants, and that's going to, build out all your individual tags and submit that as a compliance event in our compliance inbox. Another feature that we've kind of kind of done slightly different than traditional is we have what's called a dedicated compliance inbox. And so rather than instantly syncing each event when it's done from the cultivation side, all of those metric requirements go into the compliance inbox. And what this is doing is it's allowing the compliance manager, the compliance director at facilities to offload a lot of the work that they would be doing hands-on. So in this type of situation, we could say there's you know four or five facilities operating and all of their cultivators are doing these plant-specific tasks. It's building those compliance inbox events based on the tasks in that plant lifecycle. 
And the compliance manager can keep an eye on that inbox. Basically, it's a great spot to audit the events before they get submitted directly to the state database. Yeah, I think one of the huge features, Jason, is it takes a lot of work off of compliance managers and also kind of helps with accuracy because like when we're creating clones, for instance, it can be set up so the cultivator there is grabbing that grabbing that mother tag, scanning it. There's no handwriting errors or communication errors. We know it was that tag, made the clone tags, uh, compliance manager can confirm it, and it's just a lot simpler. Not, no massive downloading and uploading CFB, CSVs. I think my, my favorite part of it as well is the uh, harvest process integration that we've set up. So we do sell a, an O-House um, hanging scale and also a, an O-House um, suitcase scale, if you will, or, or a floor scale. And those uh, have Bluetooth modules in them that directly communicate with Arroyo. And so for states where you're individually doing plant weights during harvest, you can simply use our ID scanner, swipe the tag, and uh, then you can throw it on the scale, and that'll definitely speed up the process. You're welcome to use uh, as many scales as you want. So if you have 1,500 plants coming down, you may need you know two or three scales to make that process as fast as possible. All that information is getting written into the harvesting workflow in Arroyo, and the even better part is now you're attributing your wet weights directly into your harvest group record. So when we talk about Getting the biggest picture on this process, we're thinking about all the inputs that go into growing a product, and now you're automatically pushing your end weight, your wet weight, into Arroyo as well. Some of the features beyond just the harvest would be some of the processing flows in there, and you're welcome to build packages, uh, dry lots, and track that all in regards to the record as well. Uh, one of the more recent features that we've released is the ability to upload a lab cert so that you can get an idea of what your terpene profile, THC, and certification information comes to for any of the packages in that harvest group. The thing that we're pretty close to releasing is what we're calling a generic harvest workflow. And so for states that um, aren't using metric or we haven't specifically integrated with yet, they, um, the clients can now use our scale and our RFID tag to speed up their harvest process and attribute their weights directly into Arroyo. Yeah, the generic harvest flow offers offers an awesome option for, say, bigger companies who are using, you know, post-production uh, software for post-production that that team really likes and they're not concerned with cultivation. We can still pull your weight CSVs and transfer that over. So you can still use the uh, Bluetooth scales and the whole harvest capabilities without having to directly sync it to metric. It gives you options. Amazing. A lot of stuff to make Rose lives a lot easier. Well, we we all know that compliance sometimes isn't fun, so try to make it as easy and accurate as possible. Uh, it's one of those things that you got to take as much advantage of the information that you have to do anyways. So if it's a process that you may not be doing as a facility, if it wasn't legally required, uh, at least now you can get as much value from analyzing that uh, that data going into their system as possible. That's great. Um, we've got a, we've had a few people join us over the last few minutes. Welcome to Royal Office Hours. If you have any questions, feel free to type it into the chat at any time so that we can get your uh, question answered live. I have another question here from Instagram. LukeDub01 wants to know, uh, this is about sensors. Can you put the sensor in the same spot twice? 
We prefer not to. Uh, some of the things that are happening is those sensors are obviously reading water content and electrical conductivity uh, through the, the entire length of the prong. And sometimes if you, you know, removed the substrate sensor, we recommend that you put it into a, a new location. What, what can happen is just some air pockets. Um, those air pockets can fill up with water. We want as much uh, continuity between those prongs and the substrate as possible. And so if you can, we do always recommend to be in a fresh media, insert those prongs using the, the template that tells you the right height for them, and you know try to insert them flush smoothly without uh, without too much wiggling up and down when those are going into the substrate. Yeah, we just want uniform contact and, you know, I, the same thing can happen if you do push it in initially, push it in too far, it pulls back out a little bit and you see some super wet or super dry readings. That's the kind of thing we want to avoid. If that probe tip is reading air or a drop of water, that's going to throw your average off, even if it's only one of those probe tips. So scooting it over or going to a different side of the block is preferable. Excellent. Thank you. Um, my next question comes from Canalabs Australia. Okay. Do you think there are any issues relating to fertigation water being stored in the lines whilst pumps are off? I am aware there are pressure regular, regulated dump valves, but these seem to waste a lot of nutrient water. How do these go with pressure regulated emitters and get in, getting even watering? I guess that would, I mean, maybe not a huge concern, but right off the top, um, would be the temperature of that water going in. Uh, so if you do have a whole bunch of irrigation in the lines, then it's going to be closer to room temperature, uh, depending on the length of the run between your fertigation room and the room that you're you're asking about. It, it could be a fairly significant amount of, of water. Um, another thing would be pH fluctuations. So as irrigation water sits, um, a lot of times that pH has a tendency to rise. Yeah, temperature can affect pH for sure. We're talking about, you know, ions moving around in that solution. Also, depending on how frequently you irrigate, if that same nutrient water is sitting there, you know, if we're running generatively and rocking it, we've got a one-hour P1 window in the morning. Those lines are sitting full now for 22, 23 hours at 77 to 82 degrees. Way more likely to start to build up biofilm if you don't have them, you know, spotlessly sanitary inside, which is can be difficult to achieve for sure so kind of kind of breaking down into maybe a little bit more advanced um, information on that obviously the temperature of your irrigation water is kind of important a um, couple of factors one is obviously when we decrease the temperature uh, the water has a little bit higher solubility for dissolved oxygen dissolved oxygen is a really good thing because your roots are going to need that oxygen to stay healthy, stay white. And, um, yeah. Yep. We want to avoid anaerobic conditions in the root zone at all costs, whether that's leaving water in there too long or putting really stagnant water on it. So if, you know, if you're not water, uh, irrigating frequently, it might be an idea to drain that back. That's not to say though, you can't build a recovery system to try to recover some of that nutrient solution that hasn't been used in recircuit. Great. Oh, awesome. We have a question here from Michael. He let me know he's got a bad signal, so I'm going to go ahead and ask for him. He wants to know, does Arroyo or Meter Group recommend any specific TDS meters that can read a higher PPM and EC? 
most top out around 10 EC. Yeah, so TDS being total dissolved solids. Uh, that was weird. Um, yeah. <laughs> we recommend the ES2 for meter group. Uh, it's usually, it, it does start to lose accuracy as you get higher up in the ECs, but with, uh, with that ES2, you know, up to 20 uh, is pretty reasonable. Obviously, you know, basically two types of EC sensors that you're going to want to have at your facility. One is the in-substrate EC meter, and Terras 12 is uh, going to be the best sensor on the market for measuring in-substrate EC. And then for inline, you can use our uh, RES2. So that's a great thing for monitoring real-time data on your fertigation lines. So put one on your manifold or put one um, on the line going into your room. We usually recommend installing it um, with a little bit of a trap just so that the thing doesn't dry out mm -hmm. and you get kind of an idea of what uh, what that what that EC fluctuation could be during irrigation events or, or overnight. Yeah, and even with that ES2, I noticed a comment on here about runoff testing. It can be used for that too, but just as Jason was saying, a, a trap is pretty essential. Um, that's that's the main thing with the ES2 is keeping it wet all the time. But otherwise, it's it's great to have your eyes on both things, especially your feed EC coming in. Um, runoff EC, a lot of times I think you'll find when you're doing bulk runoff EC for a lot of plants, a little bit hard to interpret, but still valuable and worth keeping your eye on. Excellent. Thank you. Hello. Welcome. I see your question here. Would you like to go ahead and unmute yourself and ask it? Maybe we're all dealing with the connection issues. I'll go ahead and ask on his on his behalf here. Hi guys, I miss you. We miss you too. What is the least utilized Arroyo feature you wish more people knew was there? Love that question. The least utilized, you get it started. What are you thinking? Manual readings on the mobile app. That, that would be like one that people seem to be the slowest to adopt. And once they have time to actually start putting those in, they seem to be pretty stoked that it's there. Yeah, um, one feature that I would love to see everyone use, and maybe it's not the, the least utilized, but uh, attribute your harvest groups as, as much as possible. I mean, that's what those manual readings go into, and that's, that's the big picture. When we look, at, uh, we look at the biggest values, tracking every cycle from the beginning of your grow to today. So obviously there's clients that have hundreds of harvest groups, and it makes it an easy way to break down each grow cycle, attribute them with, uh, with that weight, get an idea of what inputs got you, what outputs and what possible, um, possible scenarios made you have a really good run. I uh, ran into an interesting situation, uh, probably five or six months ago where, uh, where a client actually, um, made a few mistakes and were, had one of their best runs ever. Uh, and so they were able to build a new recipe for that specific strain based on some of what they thought were issues um, that actually improved that crop cycle. So, and without tracking that every time, it's, it's hard to get an idea of what needs to be replicated to produce a better product for that continuous improvement process that's going to make you uh, as competitive in the market as possible. Yeah, complete your recipe. I mean, really get all the information in there you can because, I mean, especially with the uh, cyclical nature of what everyone's doing, I can guarantee that by the time you run one strain 20 or 30 times, it's going to be real hard to go back and remember 
which specific run a certain thing happened on that you want to take advantage of. Like it just, it's, it's a data problem and the human brain's only capable of uh, retrieving <laughs> the right data at the right time, you know, with help sometimes. We all have an upper limit on what we can store in our bank upstairs. Yeah, some of our arts aren't that high. That might be a little bit of a lower limit for me. Well, for me, it's random. <laughs> you might not get the right information back when I put in the request. <laughs> Thanks, Paula. Well, thank you so yeah. much for that Miss question. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you may have an or I, ha or I had already, but if you don't, stick around after the broadcast. Oh, yeah. You <laughs> Um, anybody who's just joined us, welcome. We are here for you. We want to answer your questions live, so please do type them in the chat, and we can address those. Um, until that happens, I can go on to our next one, which came through on Instagram. A. Hall Mouncey asks, what's the best irrig irrigation strategy to root a Delta block into a one-gallon cocoa bag? Can Arroyo help me? Yeah, Arroyo can definitely help you. It'll allow you to uh, watch the small applications you're making every day. And for rooting, really, when we put a block on top of another media like that, what we want to do is wait, you know, probably one day and then start hitting it with a few very small shots in the 1% range. And the idea is we need to push water and oxygen down through that block into the cocoa so those roots essentially have a place to follow the water. So we don't want to just wait for that dryback to occur. We want to push some water down help force those roots into the block below. And then once we hit, you know, at least a five to 10% dryback, we can start steering it. Yeah. One of the, one of the challenges um, with using mixed media types like that, I, I see a lot of people successful doing it, but is getting an idea of what pH you want to go in at when you are trying to make that transformation. So when we talk about an ideal pH for rock wool, usually it's at 5.6 and for things like cocoa, it's going to be a little bit higher that pH is going to modulate the nutrient solubility in that substrate. And so when you do make substrates like that, it's, it's hard um, to know exactly when you want to start raising your pH because those roots are now in the cocoa rather than just in the block itself. Um, one thing you can do is there's a lot of manufacturers now that have a, it'd be about the equivalent of a, a, you know, a four by four by four, or maybe it's a, I think they're actually like, Five by five by three, if it's cocoa. Point three gallons is what they're saying. Point three. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And so, so that's the, in a kind of just a mesh bag. Uh, mm -hmm. So it's a great way to run your veg, um, run your starts in um, the same media as well. And when those plants are transplanted, the roots are going to simply grow through that mesh bag. So it's pretty easy. I mean, it's a low labor transition, just like probably why you're using those um, those delta blocks to get started. Yeah, the key there is that small media size is really easy for the clone to root into. It doesn't have to put a lot of effort if it's only got to go an inch and a half any direction to hit the edge of the block and get air. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And you know, we've run into some people that um, struggled to get rapid root growth when they're um, they're running in a Hugo, for example, through veg. Mm -hmm. And basically what's going on there is the transpiration rate of the plant is not nearly enough to hit the drybacks that you want. And so you can see some root stagnation when, uh, when you've got that large volume of, of water available in, in say, a, a Hugo when you're uh, in veg. Yep, absolutely. And, you know, another thing to watch out for, too, is uh, as, as a rule, cocoa, you know, across brands is somewhat variable batch to batch, um, depending on when you get it. 
you have a pretty big difference in matrix potential between that block and the cocoa, potentially. Some cocos will hydrate up into the 60s, low 70s, and it's not as big of a deal. But when you've got, again, say a Hugo, especially one that's not a quick drain, and then you put it on top of some cocoa that'll only hit 45%, then we can start to run into some issues with not getting the water where we want it in the media, where that rock wool can actually pull water out of the cocoa. That's something we don't want to happen. Exactly. And I mean, so how... How Arroyo can really help this is use substrate sensors in your veg if you can, and absolutely get your substrate sensors in when you're transplanting into those those larger substrates. Uh, keep an eye on your drybacks, um, the loss of water content when they're rooting in, and that'll give you an idea on when you can begin your your generative irrigation scheduling. Yep, and always, you know, as a rule of thumb, anytime you get a new shipment of media in, or every time you hydrate some up. At transplant time, stick it real quick. If you've got the Solus or even one of our other substrate sensors, get your actual baseline because rarely is it exactly what it says on the box or the bag. And that's not the manufacturer's fault. That's just uh, a reality we have to accept, especially if we want to get as precise as possible. Excellent. Precision is key. Okay. We have a question here from the chemical grower. They want to know, is it wise to measure the pH and EC runoff? Absolutely. Yeah. That's something that um, should be a daily practice. And obviously it's best if you can get a number of samples um, in there. Kind of just depends on how you're collecting that runoff. Um, putting a tray underneath the plant, making sure that the plant's not um, sitting in that water is, is a great way to capture single plant runoff um, numbers. If you're doing that, usually it's good to have a few of those in each room. Um, and then obviously strain by strain, definitely want to keep that data separate so that you can get an idea if uh, plants are feeding differently in that room. Yeah, it's something you really want to pay attention to, especially um, as you're trying to dial, you know, recipes for one strain or something I've run into lately is people making nutrient switches and like they don't really know how their plants are going to respond to it yet. And then, you know, three or four weeks in, it's like, okay, I've got these issues. What are they? Well, if we watch it along the way, we can start to say, okay, well, your plant's not uptaking very well. Your pH is going up. EC is going up on the runoff. And obviously we're not using that as our only metric, but it is one way to evaluate how effective our uh, nutrient regimen is. Great. Okay. We're moving on to our next question here. This is from River City Growers. How will the upcoming dry room sensors work with drying curing product? Yeah. So... Great that uh, you've heard about that. We're very excited about integrating Aqualab into a Arroyo so that you can push those water activities directly into the system. So when we think about you know why why having a, a process specific uh, data center is so important is because here we've got you know lots of energy and, and money invested in a product that uh, could be um, reduced in quality if it's not dried appropriately. And so there's, you know, there's a short window of time there and a short window of uh, water activity that needs to be achieved. Basically, how it works technically is go into your dry rooms and, and sample on a daily basis when, with your Aqualab. That'll push that water activity into um, our Arroyo dry module, if you want to call it that. And uh, we're going to run some some algorithms on there that give you an idea of the ideal time frame to pull that that product out to achieve the water activity that you're looking for. 
Yeah, and then another part too is with the Atmos uh, climate stations hanging in your room, you can really watch your humidity and actually set alerts and stuff and start to equate like, hey, we really want to keep it at that 58 to 62 percent. Um, when we go higher than that, especially in like the first four days, we're seeing some mold pop up. We can start identifying some other issues. And then even post hanging, when you pull it down, you can start using that Aqualab to test your product on a regular basis in storage or processing and say, okay, we got to up our humidity in the processing room. Like we're, we're literally losing grams when we try to package this guys. So not only is it helpful for that drying process, but even farther afterwards, starting to identify all those little spots you're losing money in the form of uh, water vapor going in the air. It's exciting. I'm, I'm excited to hear more about that. When, when do we think that feature is launching? Soon. Very, very soon. Everybody. Yeah. I, I, I believe that uh, we're doing an install with it either the next week or the week after that. So um, we'll be... Uh, We'll be publishing that launch officially um, on our our social and our, our website to give everybody an idea of when it's available. Yeah, we're you trying to. In, sorry, Keisha. I was gonna say we're trying to internally break it as much as possible and fix it before mm -hmm. it goes out. Yeah, we're, we're getting yeah. better at identifying how to break these things before we give it to our customers because we know if it's not perfect, they will. Yeah, and that's no, that's great. an awesome development practice for us too. Yeah. <laughs> it's nice. And Everybody learns from it yep. for sure. That's exciting. I love that River City Grows submitted that. It also feels good to know that they're paying attention to what we're up to. Mm -hmm. um, just a reminder to everybody who's on, if you have any questions, type it in the chat. We want to get those answered. Um, let's see here. I have a question here from High Fuel OG. They write, "I'm used to flushing with straight RO, but no, you recommend against it." But what is a proper flush supposed to consist of? Want to switch, but not sure how. So I, I mean, in any hydroponic situation, I, I like to avoid the term flush um, simply because it, it might be an antiquated process uh, running RO in, in a media that does not have a very high cation exchange capacity. Um, you can run into to some issues with uh, not getting enough nutrients up to that plant, um, changing the osmotic pressure rapidly. And it, it really, it's probably not the best practice for rock wools or cocos. Um, and then obviously if you're deep water cultures, that's a absolute no-go. Um, you know, if you, if you are in a, a soil substrate and or organic, um, that kind of cation exchange capacity is quite a bit higher, um, so you could run RO for a, a few days, uh, simply because the nutrients are they're well they're well held, well kept in that substrate. But with things like um, rock wool and cocoa, I'll usually go to maybe seventy five percent or or fifty percent strength for you know five to seven days if if you want to go that long. For, and I like to call it ripening, just because that's the goal in what we're doing to those plants. Yeah, when you talk about flushing, I think there's some confusion. Um, you know, some people are referring to more of a physical type flush and, you know, flushing out the media. Other people are envisioning somehow flushing fertilizer out of the plant. And uh, one thing to think about, you know, if your idea about flushing is to get rid of fertilizer and uh, let's say your background is, you know, you're, a lot of us would champion, say, outdoor organic or living soil. If you actually have soil or a soilless mix that you've built, you've, you've never actually been able to flush that just because of the cation exchange Jason was talking about. We can put water on that all day, but that media actually has the ability to hold on to those ions. 
when we're talking about hydroponic situations, it doesn't. So in that flush, if we go straight RO, we potentially risk starving the plant and putting a weak plant into drying. And weak plants mold. Yep, that's exactly right. Great. Okay. So we've gotten multiple questions about EC. Um, let me tell you about two of them here. So Brad A85 wants to know what EC should substrate be at harvest day? And Numex540 wants to know how much EC is a good number on my substrate? What is too much to not waste money? So maybe we can speak to that um, in a more general way to answer these two questions. What do you guys think? Sure. Um, I'm just going to start off by talking about EC dynamics. And one of the reasons that um, time series data is so important is because, uh, you, know, you know, traditionally maybe we're just looking at the EC, the feed EC, which is going to be fairly consistent. You know, it's sitting at 3, 3.2, whatever, uh, whatever works best for the nutrient line that you have deployed in your system. Uh, but when we look at substrate EC, we get to see the dynamics. So it, that EC is going to usually rise substantially throughout the day. Uh, and so to answer that first question, what would the substrate EC be um, on harvest day? Well, how, how did you irrigate that day? Um, you know, a lot mm -hmm. of times if, if we did irrigate, you know, maybe see a, a nominal uh, of about three or four. But uh, as that dryback happens, you know, we could see that EC up into 12, 15 range. Um, so, you know, it, it is a really dynamic number to keep in mind. Yeah, so the, the range between efficiency and toxicity, especially in cannabis, is huge. So a way to look at that is like, all right, when I'm looking at my graph, I've got lots and lots of runoff. But my EC is still up. The plant's not eating it. Okay. You know, that's, that's not a good strategy I'm going for. If we back off on feeding and stacking to the point where we start to see deficiencies and then build up from there, that's how we'd get perfect. But <laughs> in our world, we want to keep them healthy. So we want to look at a baseline of like, if your, EC, your feed EC is 3.0, your media EC should ne never be below that, for instance. That means you're pushing too much runoff. That also means your plants need a lot more nutrition going into them. So, yeah, it's it's a very dynamic thing, and uh, I've, I've seen plants finish off in the 25 range on a high EC and look just fine. There There is no concrete, like, here's the number you want to look for, unfortunately. Yeah, I just kind of wrap back around... Um to some of that runoff information, if we do see a, a substantial pH rise um, coming out of that runoff, a lot of times it, that can indicate that we're, we're underfeeding or our nutrient composition isn't balanced quite correctly. So um, that information can kind of lead down to a diagnosis on, on improvement areas. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And then from there, we start to look at, you know, plant physiology. Let's get a tissue test. Let's see what's actually going on in there. Um, a lot of times, nutrient deficiencies are a little bit more complicated than they first appear by just looking at a leaf. It's just, just how she goes. Great. Okay, so um, still on the topic of EC here, and these also come from High Fuel OG. They have two questions here. They want to know, how would one attempt to raise EC without messing up the balance of nutrients? And you put in parentheses here, salt-based. And then the other question was, when trying to change feed EC for crop steering, is it better to just dilute my regular formula? Well, that depends on what your regular formula is exactly. So 
when we're crop steering, we try to run a more consistent EC in the feed and then modulate EC via runoff. So more runoff, lower EC, less runoff, we're going to stack EC inside the pot. So the idea is the more water we flush through it, the more salt that's going to run out. The less we flush through and allow water to be transpired, the more it's going to build up in the media. Yeah, and, um, so that's kind of, uh, that's a really good way to think about, um, you know, over the course of a few days, how you can bump up the, the nominal or the average EC. Uh, obviously, when we talk about crop steering, we're talking about modulating your, uh, your irrigation window. And if we have a shorter irrigation window, it means that our EC is going to be rising for a lot more of the day as well. So just simply by having a shorter irrigation window, the average EC in the day that that plant feels is going to be higher simply because of the amount of rise. Excellent. Great. Um, I think we've had one or two other people just joining us. Just a reminder, everybody, if you have any questions, type them in the chat. We want to answer them live today. Um, River City Growers actually submitted another question that um, sounded interesting. They want to know, will we see integration with systems like Trollmaster in the near future? Like Trollmaster? Um, Trollmaster's not uh, near the top of our list for integration um, stuff. We definitely are going to be releasing our open sprinkler integration, which is, is very exciting. It's um, kind of the, the first control output uh, that you'll be able to do from Arroyo. And a lot of our clients use an open sprinkler because of its cost effectiveness and how simple it is to use. Uh, it has a very, um, very modular approach to it in which you can do as short or as long irrigations as you need. You can do as many as you want in a schedule. Uh, you can export that configuration and import into another open sprinkler. Uh, you can add expansion models, if, modules, if you have a, a lot of valves to control. And so that's that's where we're going first with uh, with the integration that we have uh, in line. Obviously, we do have an open API that anybody is welcome to to snag the data from that open API and, and use it how they please. Yeah, and honestly, part of the reason I think we're uh, so... Other than open sprinklers, you know, cooperation and how well it, or how easy it is to work with their hardware, um, it's also pretty user friendly and the price point is beautiful. You know, there's plenty of people that I've talked to that have kept their troll master and just added the open sprinkler to the mix because at, at 150 bucks starting, it's pretty cheap install and it goes right. You don't even have to run wires to a new place or anything. So we have just, you, you just, you explained another new addition that's coming out. When's that coming? The, spink, the sprinkler integration. Yeah. So we, uh, we internally launched this. I turned mine on last Friday. Um, our CEO Scott's running it in his grow in his basement here um, since last Friday as well. So we're going to run some internal testing on it. Then, uh, then we'll release it to some beta development partners that we have relationships with. And, uh, and after we make the appropriate revisions to, to anything that we run into software side or, uh, or communication wide, then, uh, then we'll release it to the public. But with, so much with, with anything that is control-based, um, all of that testing needs to vet the application as best as possible. Last thing that uh, we want is to have a liability of a missed irrigation going on. Mm-hmm. 
Amazing. What a treat. Anybody who's watching this episode heard about two exciting things coming down the pipeline. So great. Um, all right, folks, I have one more question from Instagram, but you know, for our attendees, please let us know how, how we can help you. What questions we can answer for you in the next few minutes here. Again, from River City Growers, coming with the good questions. Um, when measuring dryback, does the lights off percentage matter or just the lights on within safe range? So we like to use just as a general number, the amount of water content loss and percentage between the last irrigation and the first irrigation of the next day. Uh, and the reason that's important is because we do need to replenish the, um, the amount that was lost overnight as well. So just running an example, if we're in a, a Rockwell slab and, <clears throat> excuse me, we're at, uh, you know, 70% um, field capacity and we are running, say, vegetative, um, when we go to calculate that and the next morning before our first irrigation, it's at, say, 45%, we'll use that number as our... Uh, as our 25% dry back. And to add to that too, we do look at, you know, daytime dry backs, but as a separate model for uh, vegetative steering. So when we hit that peak water capacity, we're going to talk about inner irrigation dry backs, and that's different than our total dry back, which is what Jason's talking about. So both exist. Generally, when you hear people talking about a dry back percentage, though, they're talking about that total overnight dry back, not their inner irrigation dry backs. Total, total, including overnight. Yes. Yep. Michael has a question here. Michael, you want to unmute yourself and go ahead and ask? How's it going, guys? Good. How are hey, you doing Michael? today? I'm doing great. Um, so I actually asked the Instagram question about flushing. Um, I'm uh, hand watering in uh, five-gallon cocoa pots. Um, just still been learning about crop steering. Going to switch to an irrigation system soon. Um, but I'm beginning a flush today and, uh, I've just always done straight, um, straight water for two weeks and I've had good success with it. And I'm just like afraid of screwing up the harvest. I guess I'm just looking for some affirmation that, you know, that my butt isn't going to smoke, like, you know, burn black ash and turn out not how I want it. Um, yeah. Can you just go in a little more about, you know, how it makes sense to just go with a 50% or 75% uh, flush as opposed to straight water? Well, first off, if you are going to go with straight water or lower feed, um, avoid mechanically or physically flushing it. You know, I think there again, that's where a lot of confusion is. We're not trying to force everything out of the bottom of that pot. In fact, like even if you did run straight water, if you, if you had a sensor in there and you can run basically no runoff that final little bit, you can still get away with maintaining that EC in the root zone, especially with your cocoa that does hold on to some cations. You'll have some food left in there, but doing it blind is definitely risky, I guess is the best way I'd put that. And to speak to the black ash issue, um, there's a few things that can go on there. Um, some of it's, you know, leftover sugars left in the bud. A lot of it happens to be bud that's just slightly too wet. So between curing and finishing, like those are two things that you kind of have to do the same time every time to try to identify where your uh, harsh smoke is coming from because carbohydrates and chlorophyll taste pretty bad too when you burn them. 
Yeah, and I mean, if we, we think about, you know, two weeks is a fairly substantial amount of that plant's life cycle. We want to add as much weight to that plant, uh, even towards the end as possible. Yep, and we don't, uh, you know, essentially if you starve that plant at the end, going right back to post-production quality, it's, I don't know if you've ever been there, but it's pretty heartbreaking to hang up some plants and have, you know, half the plant mold out three days after you hung it up, even though it looked beautiful when you cut it down. And sometimes that's just because we already have some cellular weakness or death going on at the stem level inside the buds. Once that mold germinates on any bit of weak tissue, it's in there and it's spreading. Yeah, and kind of one of the struggles um, that you might keep a heads up on, Michael, is as you do crop steer, you're probably going to end up with substantially larger buds. Uh, and a ton of our clients, you know, while it is a good problem to have, they'll find that they run out of dehumidification capacity after they've started uh, crop steering simply because of the increase of bulk um, going into those dry rooms. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, some of your some of the older uh, models people are using to calculate dehumidification capacity in relation to grow rooms are. Uh, that's the best way to put it. The deltas are too small. They're not calculating a big enough range of what's actually possible because ten years ago, people weren't cranking out this kind of humidity inside of a small grow room with tomatoes or spinach or uh, kind of any other traditional greenhouse crops. Cool. Thanks, guys. Really appreciate it. No problem. Michael, great question. Thank you so much for answering. If you can stick around a little after the broadcast, because we want to send you a hat. So I want to get your contact info. Um, one of our attendees, Orion, is on, and they also have a question. Orion, you want to go ahead and unmute, your, unmute yourself and ask? And in case there's some technical issues, let me go ahead and ask on their behalf. Um, do you recommend shutting the lights off the day before harvest? And do you water like normal up until the chop? To answer the first part, no. I've, yeah, it's nice to maybe turn the lights down while you're harvesting so everyone stays a little bit yeah. cooler. Um, <laughs> from a, a people perspective, keep your harvesting crew happy. Uh, as far as the, you know, the science behind it, it's not something that I've looked into substantially. I, I can't imagine that there's going to be a huge difference um, in a you know, longer photo period for that last day or not. Um, yeah, I don't think there's any evidence to support it pushing any extra production in the plant. And honestly, I do think it's a little risky because mold likes dark and wet. And at that point in the cycle, that's just adding an extra 12 hours of dark and wet to our potential risk there. Um, what was the second part of that? Could you say it again, Keisha? Sure. Do you water like normal up until the chop? Generatively, in that ripening phase, yes. We, we want to chop down a robust plant, not one that we've tortured right up till we kill it. <laughs> I mean, we're, we're stressing it, but we don't, we don't want it to go in insanely weak. Great questions, Orion. Um, if you can, stick around after the broadcast. We want to send you a hat and get your contact info. Um, those were all the questions we have submitted so far. Any, oh, oh, here we go, Orion typed here. Some people cut off water the last day, but you answered my questions. Awesome. Thank you for much, so much for asking. Can, can I comment um, too real quick? Orion, some people might do that because they chop in the morning. And uh, if you water right before you chop, those blocks are heavier to carry out of the room. Yeah, and most of that irrigation is not going to be absorbed by the plant anyways. And so you're really just pouring some nutrients down into your blocks and, and wasting it. Yep. 
I love it. It's all about these tips and tricks, right? Um, Seth and Jason, any final words before we sign off? It's a good session today. We really appreciate everybody's questions and, and being part of this process. We're, we've really enjoyed doing these sessions to, to help people out. So tell your friends about this uh, this time every Thursday. You know, 420 Eastern time should be a, an easy number number to remember. And uh, we look forward to seeing you all again. Yeah, I'm enjoying myself, guys. Let's keep it going. This is fun every week. I look forward to it for sure. Yeah, office hours every week is a blast. So glad to see you guys. And thank you all so much for coming. Um, remember, Michael and Orion, stick around for just a couple more minutes. I want to get your contact info. But thank you, for every, thank you, everyone, for joining us for Office Hours Live. If you have any questions about Arroyo, how it can be used to improve your cultivation production process, or any other topic you want to get covered in a future session, please post it in the chat. Shoot us an email at support.arroyo at metergroup.com. Send us a DM on Instagram. We want to hear from you. So we record every session. We're going to email everyone in attendance a link to the video from today's discussion. It'll also be on the Arroyo YouTube channel. Like, subscribe, and share while you're there. And if you find these conversations helpful, just like just Seth and Jason just said, please do spread the word. Um, and we'll look forward to seeing you next time. Thanks, everybody. Office Hours Live is brought to you by Arroyo, the ultimate cultivation platform. Unlock the power of crop steering through our state-of-the-art sensors and software repeat successful runs, and scale faster than ever before. Schedule a demo today at Arroyo.io.